Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Austin Ruse. He's been with us before. He's the president of CFAM, a research institute in Washington, D.C. He talked with us previously, uh, several months back, and he has a new book out entitled Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. Welcome, Austin. I am happy to be with you, Mark. All right, well, just just an information question. What does CFAM do? CFAM is, uh, as you say, a research institute. We, we spend our days assisting UN delegates in, in negotiating documents. Our primary mission is to ensure that abortion doesn't become an international human right in UN documents, that the family is not redefining UN documents, uh, that sexual orientation, gender identity doesn't become a new category of non discrimination in international law. We've been at it since uh, August of 19. 19- 97, and uh, we've been successful in all of those things. Um, you know, we've participated in every major and pretty much every minor negotiation since that. That kind of surprises me, Austin. I mean, you, you've got, uh, on the other side, working against you, you've, you've got the Ford Foundation. You've got all the adv- advocacy groups. You've got the Democratic Party. You've got some very powerful opponents. How have you managed to, to do this, to win? Well, I mean, it's bigger than that. I mean, we, we're, we're up against the, the European Union. Uh, we're up against all the Nordic countries. Uh, we're up against uh, major UN agencies with billions of dollars, the WHO, UNICEF, UN Women, UN AIDS. Uh, we have been able to do this by always being able to cobble together enough member states to say no. Uh, the UN ostensibly works by consensus. Now, in the old days, that was, you know, there three objecting countries would have been enough to block any language. And, and, and that's, that's what we had in the early days of our negotiations. But now, you know, you need uh, 30, 40, 50, or you need a few that are just really persistent. So it's always, it's, it's been a minority, but it's, I mean, if there was an up or down vote on an international right to abortion at the UN, we would win. But, you know, they sneak in these phrases like reproductive health and reproductive rights. And so that's a little bit harder because a lot of countries have reproductive health programs and they say, ah, it's okay by us. It doesn't include abortion. Uh, but we've always been able to cobble together enough member states to say no. Um, and that's why the other side is so, is, is so cranky. <laughs> right, right. Even when they win, they don't seem to be having much fun. They're never happy. All right. Well, to the book, to the book. Uh, you begin by describing our time as, quote, a dark valley. Nonetheless, it is, quote, no finer time to be a Catholic. Uh, you, you, want, you, want to, you want to fix that for us, Austin? Explain. Well, no finer time to be a faithful Catholic. Uh, is, and faithful is, is the key word there. And what I mean by that is, uh, we, you know, this, this country, our society, has uh, never seen, I think, darker times than, than, than now. I, I guess during the Civil War would have been one. Um, but, but, you know, faithful people are now surrounded uh, and being inundated with great evil. 
Um, but God knows what he's about. Um, and in the first chapter, I go through in great detail about how dark things are. I talk about a company that most people have never heard of called MindGeek, uh, which is the company that invented uh, streaming uh, hardcore pornography, which allows you know, school children to access porn on smartphones. And so, so I go, I go fairly deep, not explicitly deep into the darkness, but I, I, I go into some aspects of the darkness that people don't know. Um, but see, God knows what he's about. He knew that all of this is going to happen. And who did he send? He sent the likes of you and me. So, so if you're a faithful Catholic, this is a remarkable time because God sent us into a desperate battle. And it doesn't really get any better than that. We're not made for ease and comfort. We're made for struggle. All right, so you, you, you identified, okay, pornography, abortion. What other major evils of our time would you single out? Well, you know, the transgender agenda, uh, I, I think, is, is a huge one now. You know, after, after uh, the sexual left won uh, in Obergefell, uh, I think that they immediately pivoted to transgender because they needed to keep the, the sexual agenda on the boil and uh, so they immediately pivoted to that. You know, in my previous book, Fake Science, um, I, I, I went to the New York Times and I counted the number of times they mentioned transgender in the newspaper by year prior to 2015, which was a burger fell. It was, it was a handful of times and it was only ever uh, in the context of LGBT. Uh, now, Obergefell hits in 2015. In 2016, I counted 1,067 mentions of transgender all by itself, which is you know more than three a day. So, so they pivoted to transgender and 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 specifically trans quote transgender children. Um, so, so they're advancing uh, behind children to advance their agenda. Um, just like the Janissaries and, and, you know, kidnapping Christian children to use against uh, Christian Christian communities. So I, I would say that uh, the LGBT thing is is probably the biggest threat right now. I mean, all of the, what do the, all of these things have in common? They have in common, you know, the the the, the worship of, uh, of of a sexual obsession, the worship of the orgasm. So so I I think that. Uh, in there, I write about the establishment of a new state church, and I think the major denomination in the new state church are the sexual obsessives. You call this really a civilizational crisis, an abyss, as you put it. Why, why, why add the word civilizational to this here? Well, I mean, they are fundamentally changing uh, the way that we see ourselves. Uh, you know, one of the arguments in the book is uh, you know is is how how do we see ourselves as a people, and how do what is the story that we tell ourselves, and what is the story that we tell our children, and it has fundamentally changed. Um, and I, I trace it back to 1962. I mean, you can go back to the you know the French Revolution, you go back to the Garden of Eden, but but in 1962, the Supreme Court in the school prayer decision, and then in the Bible reading decision in 1963 put its thumb on the scale in, in the culture wars and, and said that the object and purpose of government must be secular. Um, now, this was a healthy debate in this country up to that time. There were people at the founding, um, you know, said we, we are, we see, we're, there, there's a phrase that uh, Professor Stephen Smith at the University of uh, San Diego Law School uses called the providentialists. Uh, and the providentialists have believed uh, that we can see the hand of God in history 
And uh, this is the this is the story that we have to tell that we tell ourselves and our children. Over against the providentialists are the secularists, and they they were present at the founding as well, who believe that there's no place for for religion, you know, in the in, in government of the public square. In 1963, in the Bible reading case, uh, the Supreme Court came down officially on the side of the secularists. And what happened after that? We saw the uh, the, the the contraception decisions uh, Griswold and Eisenstadt. After that, we saw Roe v. Wade. After that, we saw a couple of sodomy decisions constitutionalizing uh, sodomy, and then of course Obergefell in 2015. So all of this has gone to I say establish a new state church and to fundamentally attempt to change our civilization, who we are, and who we are as a people, what we tell ourselves. Why do these radicals want to get on school boards? That's one strategy, tactic that you point out. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that they determined a long time ago. Well, you know, it's been going on for a very long time. I remember back in 1972-73, uh, uh, my dad going down to the school board and, uh, and complaining about some book that, uh, that, that, that was being taught. I don't remember what it was. Uh, but I mean, you know, there has been general discomfort among conservative parents about things going on in schools for a long time. But I mean, now they have been completely inundated. I live in Northern Virginia and, uh, you know, down, you know, down the road, they're teaching school children that, uh, you know, sex is assigned at birth, um, that kids can be born in the wrong body, that boys can be girls, girls can be boys. They're teaching them about a homosexual party drug called PrEP. Uh, they're, th- th- by the time a kid is in seventh grade, that every year they're getting 22 mentions of anal sex. So, uh, <laughs> they, you know, they, they, they took over the schools precisely to indoctrinate their children, our children in, into the new established church, into, you know, the new sex God. Is there any wake up on the part of conservatives at this level, uh, that, we need to do the same kind of thing. We need to get on school boards. We need to get into you know, offices in the mayor's administration that are completely under the radar, but they actually have, have some influence. Well, you know, just look at the school board in Fairfax County, Virginia. Um, the, the exact budget number um, uh, escapes me, but it's several billion dollars that, uh, that they manage every year, which is larger than a lot of state, state, state budgets. Uh, so it's vitally important for people to get involved in the school board. You know, when, when this thing called family life education was first percolating at the uh, Fairfax County School Board, my wife and, and friends and strangers would go down and, 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 you know, take the microphone for two minute speeches um, and object. Um, but still, the, the school board at that time was was ten bad guys, two good guys. Now it's twelve bad guys, no good guys. Um, so you know, it, it 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 almost you know when I travel around and talk about my work at the UN, people always say, "What can I do?" And I say, "Well, you know, we don't really need you at the UN. Uh, what you need to do is stay home and take over the school board." And I think that it is fundamental that people take over school boards and, you know, and, you know, uh, get involved in education, you know, become teachers, um, go to work for the federal government. That, that's one of the things I've been talking about for years. You know, the baby boomers are retiring. There's a big opportunity for conservatives to enter into what can be quite a cushy job for life and a big pension um, and, to, and to literally turn the ship of state. 
what we saw in the in the Trump administration was uh, was was a full on assault by the bureaucracy against his agenda. But let me give you an example. It, it it took us three years to get certain things done in the Trump administration with regard to pro life in the UN. All this was taken away by the Biden administration in one week within a within <laughs> within a hundred days. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So it's like they are set up to do exactly what they want. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You know, it's it's kind of a cushy life to have a, to have a job in, in a federal bureaucracy. It's a job for life, and you could really make a difference. But it's like you know, I always tell people it, it's like uh, the Jesuits taking taking canoe upriver into Indian territory. You know, it, it's like you could be all alone and tortured and die, uh, but it would be good work nonetheless. Where is America now, you go into this in the book, where is America now on the practice and the popularity of abortion? Where, where, where are the people on this? Well, you know, uh, 30 years ago, uh, only 25% of the population self-identified as pro-life. Now uh, it, 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 it uh, switches between 51 and 49. So generally half of the country self-identifies as pro-life. Um, you know, however... There are overwhelming numbers to support Roe v. Wade. Why is that? Because people don't understand what Roe really did. You know, Ro, <laughs> people, Ro, they, think, they believe they believe that if if the court overturns Roe v. Wade, it actually makes it criminalizes abortion everywhere and always. Right. Well, they think that certainly, but they think that Roe v. Wade. Um, that, that that abortion is illegal after the first trimester in the United States, and they believe that's what Roe v. Wade did, and they have no idea of Doe v. Bolton, which was handed down on the same day, which defined the health exception in Roe so broadly as to give us abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. So people, so on the one hand, people want sensible restrictions; they they self-identify as 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 pro-life, yet they want to save Roe because they don't understand what Roe really did. That's where America is at. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with, with the new Mississippi case. Uh, you know, they could strike down Roe and it's back to the states. That would be really quite re- remarkable. I mean, that's not going to do away with abortion, but uh, boy, it's a start. Because there's this big magilla in front of us called Roe v. Wade, and we can't really do much with that in the way. We can chip away at the state level. We can we can pass legislation which will close abortion clinics and things like that. But in terms of the quote right to abortion, um, it's 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 all it's it's um, it's an immovable object until the Supreme Court overrules it. And how has the church responded to this increasing popularity of the pro-life identity? Well, if 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 you consider the church to be all of us. Um, then the church really is doing remarkable work. Uh, the pro-life movement, uh, which is, you know, Catholic and evangelical, but but I, I would say mostly Catholic, is large and deep and vast. Uh, you know, there are people working on all aspects of the pro-life cause. My group, we specialize in, in negotiating at the international level. There are groups who work on taking away leases uh, from, from abortion clinics. There are you know, people standing in front of abortion clinics. You know, Lila Rose sat in her dorm room at UCLA and thought up funny phone calls to Planned Parenthood. Uh, I, I mean, it's the, the, the church, the, the response of the church has been broad and deep and vast. Um, you know, and, and moreover, I would point out that the teachings of the church on abortion have not changed. You know, I learned the following from Richard John Newhouse, who said that on the day that 
Roe was handed down, the decision was praised by the Southern uh, by uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. They later came, you know, came back on that. But the Catholic Church in its teaching has never wavered even once on the life issues or the marriage issue or the family issue or contraception. So the church is quite strong. I, you know, I wish, I wish that there were, you know, bishops who would withhold communion or excommunicate, but you know, that the bishops aren't doing their job does not absolve the rest of us from doing our job. Uh, I, I, I tend to say that the, the, the job of the bishop is to teach the, teach the truths of the faith, protect and administer the sacraments and get the hell out of the way. Hmm. You, you, pointed at something a few minutes ago about the secular becoming the, the religion of the state. What, what is, I mean, you, you, you actually have a term for it, quote, the new state church. Be more specific. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it was what I ticked through a minute ago, uh, starting with the school prayer and the Bible reading decisions, and then on through all of these court decisions that to me, are, you know, that are, are, are sacred. They are sacred to the left. This is why the fight over Rose is, uh, and, and the LGBT issues is so bloody, is because these things are sacred to the left. Uh, Stephen Smith, in his book, uh, uh, Pagans and Christians in the City, um, explains, uh, explains that the, the fight in, in, in Roman days was between uh, the eminentists, those who placed the sacred in the temple plane, and, and the transcendentals uh, that, that place the sacred, of course, in the heaven. I mean, present to us in this world, but, but genuinely living uh, uh, you know, out of our sight. Um, and, and this is very much, I think, and, and he thinks so too, the fight that we're experiencing today. Uh, uh, you know, radical environmentalists are basically pantheists, for instance. And by the way, the Tocqueville said uh, in Democracy in America that Americans are eventually going to have to decide between uh, pantheism and Catholicism. He said that. Um, so, so, so we have, you know, the radical environmentalists, the pan- pantheists. We have the sex obsessed who, who worship the orgasm. All of these things are now protected and promoted by the state, by the federal government, through the Supreme Court decisions, on through the Department of Justice, the Department of Education, which enforces, you know, the transgender nonsense, all the way down to the story that we tell our children. And, and that's really where the rubber hits the road. What is the story that we tell our children? We no longer tell them that we're a providential nation. We tell them that we're a transgender nation, that we're a pantheistic nation that, that believes in, in, in the apocalyptic man-made global warming. The, these are the stories that we tell our children now, rather than the rather anodyne prayer that was said in 1962. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Why did the Supreme Court strike down school prayer? What was the core argument of the justices? 
Well, you know, the core argument was that it's you know that that it violates the establishment clause. But you know, it's interesting uh, that in, in the research for this book, I, I looked at how that came about. There, first of all, the prayer, "Almighty God, send your blessings upon our country, our teachers, ourselves," that kind of thing, was written by a Protestant minister, a Catholic priest, and a Jewish rabbi. Um, school prayer wasn't all over the country. This happened. This particular prayer was the re- called the Regents' Prayer in New York State, and when it was challenged by the atheists, um, it was it was upheld. The prayer was upheld by thirteen judges, including judges who entered into deliberation uh, against school prayer. Finally, it gets to the Supreme Court, and it's overturned six one um, <clears throat> because they say that that it was a violation of of the Establishment Clause. But, you know, the Establishment Clause was created to protect us from the state. And here, I mean, here, here's, here's my claim. Sex is assigned at birth is a religious claim. It's not based in science. It's a faith claim. Boys can be girls. It's a faith claim. Yet these, these are the faith claims that are enforced by the federal government, the state government, the local government, and the local school board. How did the nation as a whole, respond to that decision? Were people shocked? It was quite remarkable. People were shocked. Uh, There were editorials against the decision all over the country. That was at the time, after this decision, you began to see in this country uh, bumper stickers that said, impeach Earl Warren, uh, who is the the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Fifty Every governor in the country uh, condemned the decision with the exception of the governor of, of, of New York State. So, so A, it was not widely popular. It was condemned. Um, and it was also quite obviously something that the people weren't campaigning for. I argue in a column, I don't know if I mentioned in the book, you know, this claim that politics is downstream from culture. I, I think it's partially true, but culture is also downstream from politics because it was politics that, in, that took away school prayer. It wasn't the culture. Culture followed. It was not politics that, uh, that struck down the laws on contraception. Um, it, it was a political decision. There, there, weren't, there wasn't a national campaign to strike down uh, contraception laws or for abortion or for sodomy or for same-sex marriage. Hell, we won 32 statewide cases uh, 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 on, on traditional marriage. Uh, so, yeah, all, in all of these cases, it was culture following politics. In this new church, uh, new church state, who, who is the priesthood? Mm. You know, I, 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 I asked Jeffrey Ventrella uh, the, the best way to sum up who the priesthood are. And, and Jeffrey Ventrella is with the Alliance Defending Freedom, totally good guy, runs their Blackstone Fellowship. He said, and I, and I, and I use this, he said, anybody who in a robe, which means judges, <laughs> uh, academics, um, uh, scientists, you know, these are the people that the new faith will go to for their encyclicals. You know, is, and they is, all is, wear is, robes. Yes, and they all wear robes. That, that's right. That's right. Can boys become girls? Yes, they can. Oh, then we believe it. And and this is why they're so vociferous when you disagree with them because it's it's a religious claim, and they're protecting their religious belief. You actually speak of this as forms of excommunication that they have. G- give us an example of an excommunication. How how do what is that? How do they do that? Well, you know, in fake science, I wrote about uh, a scientist named Roger Pilka, um, who was an absolute believer, not an absolute believer, but a largely a believer in catas- catastrophic 
man-made global warming. But he had a difference of opinion about whether there were increased storms uh, because of global warming. And he said the reason there's more damage due to storms is because we are building up along coastlines. And so when storms hit, it, it wipes out, it, instead of wiping out a beach, it wipes out million-dollar mansions. So, so he disagreed with one aspect of the uh, uh, of the uh, of the encyclical about uh, about man-made global warming, and and he was basic. He was attacked from all sides of, of of the climate mongers, and and he eventually had to quit what he was teaching, which which was uh, which was climate science at the University of Colorado, and and now he's doing like sports medicine or something. Um, so you know, and and so that that that's how members of the church are excommunicated, and and now with with the wokeness. Uh, gosh, you know, almost anybody can be excommunicated now. And, and, that's, and that's sort of the new emerging denomination in, in the new state church is uh, are, are, the, are the woke. And, and this is reflected um, in, uh, in, in the work of, uh, of, of the major corporations uh, who have gone fully woke. Um, you know, years ago when I was, at, when I was writing for Breitbart, uh, I did a story about uh, a survey that J.P. Morgan Chase sent to all of their employees all over the world. And one of the questions was, are you LGBT or an ally? There was no other answer. And so they were rightly worried. So, you know, so not only can they excommunicate, they are also hunting for heretics everywhere. And that's us. Who is Human Rights Campaign? And how does a campaign, a specific campaign they run work? The Human Rights Campaign is a pressure group of elite uh, homosexuals. Um, they bring in $50 million a year, mostly in direct mail. They've got a signature building about three or four blocks from the White House, uh, a very powerful group of elite gays. Um, and and, and uh, one of their campaigns is, is their corporate index. Um, and their corporate index is, you know, they set criteria. D- does this company, you know, recognize same-sex couples, in, in insurance benefits, uh, transgender surgery in their, in, in their health plan, so on and so forth. And their boxes are checked. Um, you know, I, I, I believe every member every, or every corporation on the Fortune 500 gets 100% ranking uh, on, the, on the corporate index. And if you don't, a few years ago, Exxon I think when uh, when Rex, what's his name, was was running Exxon, they had like a twenty percent uh, r- ranking, and within a year they were at one hundred percent. Because if you don't have one hundred percent, they come on un- you come under severe pressure from elite gays, local newspapers, you know, boycott campaigns, so on and so forth. So so yeah, the the, it, the corporate index of the human rights campaign is huge and powerful. I mean, and this gives the lie to the idea that. Oh, this is just a marginalized community. Man, they have major power and they are not afraid of using it. Okay. Who are you refer to the quote old vicious gods? You say that they have been revived. What what do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, the the uh, the paganism, um, you know, and and, and much of I, I just have to tip my hat to the work of uh, Stephen Smith. Do do you know Professor Smith at the University of San Diego Law School. I'll look him up and have him on. You have to have him on. And I highly recommend his book, Pagans and Christians in the City. And he's written three or four books on the First Amendment. I, I just learned so much from him. But, uh, but we are in a full-blown revival of paganism. Um, 
Heck, there's a dean, a former dean of the Yale Law School who wrote a big fat book about how he's a pagan. Um, there's a book that I cited about the revival of paganism, everything from, you know, the, the, the revival of hot baths and, and, uh, and all sorts of things that, that have direct antecedents in, in the pagan years. But I mean, the fact that so many people, you know, believe in, you know, that, that, that the trees are gods, um, you know, I, I write about, um, the, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and her company called Goop. Um, and, uh, talk about watching her, her ongoing series on Netflix. And they had on this, uh, this sort of energy chiropractor, um, who, uh, they would have people lay on these massage tables and he would move his hands across their bodies, not touching them like two or three feet from their bodies. And they would writhe as if they were either having exorcisms or orgasms and, and his proposition and they absolutely believed it is that you there's energy all around every human being that 94% of the universe is energy. The rest is matter that we came from energy. We're returning to energy. I mean, all of these are pagan ideas. So, uh, so yeah, th- th- that, that is, that is the notion of the old and vicious gods. Um, and, you know, and, and old and vicious gods also, uh, do not blanch at, uh, at human sacrifice. And, and we see this in, in the, in the increasing, uh, celebration of abortion. You know, I, I, I don't regret my abortion. My, my abortion was good. Um, you know, it's no longer just a tissue of, of just a, a, a blob of tissue that's inconsequential. They recognize that it's a human being and killing it is a good. So these are the old, old and vicious gods. All right. So let's turn in our last few minutes. Uh, right now, Austin, you say no better time. You're energized. How do we avoid despair? Well, you know, uh, there are certain dispositions and personalities which which uh, would stand in the way of engaging in the present moment. Uh, I write in the book about fear. Um, you know, I write a little bit about Rod Dreher. You know, I, I, I see the same things that Rod writes about. I write about the same things have for years. But for Rod, the world is always ending. You know, he thought the world was going to end at Y2K. He thought it was going to end at uh, peak oil. Um, he, he wrote, you know, a year ago that we were going to be subsistence farming now because of the pandemic. So for him, the world is always ending. And, and I think that this works as a, as, as a fear. It instills fear in his readers who are then unable to act in the present moment. You know, that there's also uh, distraction. You know, it's so easy to be distracted these days, you know, video games and television and sports and golf and all that kind of stuff. And there's nostalgia. Some people, you know, live in the past. I, I you know, I wish I could have, lived in the 50s, I wish I could have lived in the Middle Ages, whatever. And, and all of these things prevent people from living in the present moment. And I, I, I like to point out that in, in the uh, Hail Mary, we, we ask her to pray for us now and at the hour of our death. These are the two moments we have to be concerned about, not with the past, not with the future, but with this moment in the, in the, in the, in the hour of our death. Um, there is so much in front of us to do Um, You know, and one of my spiritual directors said that there's also the problem of self-sufficiency, that people think that if they can't solve the problem themselves, then they won't even try. But the thing is, um, the littlest thing will make the world a better place. We are so surrounded by evil. uh, My preferred time to live is just before the PC 
No, no, no personal <laughs> computer. That's what I would like. Anyway, what uh, a personal question. What stimulated you to come to the church in the 1980s? Well, uh, the first, uh, well, the first uh, notion that I had of joining the church was when a snot-nosed uh, uh, TA, assistant professor, or whatever at the University of Missouri, said something denigrating about religious faith. I was a non-practicing Methodist at the time, but I thought, who do you think you are? You little snot-nosed nothing, denigrating the thing that has occupied the greatest minds of all time. That was the moment that I think I became a Catholic, because instantly getting serious about the faith, for me, it was quite obvious there was only one choice, and that's the church that Jesus founded. And so the next many years was trying to find the right books to read. You know, the only people, you know, my Catholic friends didn't know what to read. They were uncatechized. So it it, it was a long, hard slog. And in my dedication, uh, I, I dedicate the book to William F. Buckley, because I discovered smart Catholics in National Review in those days. Um, uh, and uh, Thomas Merton, his, his book, Seven Story Mountain, was very important to me. But also Anthony Burgess. Anthony Burgess's uh, Clockwork Orange is about free will. And, and he was church haunted. All of his books are about aspects of the church. And so I, I discovered the church in the, in the novels of Anthony Burgess. So it was kind of a long, hard slog. And I, I eventually found a priest and came in. The book is Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Catholic. Austin Ruse, thank you for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.